How many of you would sign up to be a Christian if you knew that it would take what Mary and Joseph had to endure in order to get through the whole birth and the raising of Jesus process? Now, it wasn't easy for them, was it? And sometimes we think that, that Christianity is just kind of the cure-all for a hard life. You know, if, and I know uh, when I was a kid, we grew up and, and people would tell me, they say, oh, if you just give your life to Christ, everything will be fine. You know, that wasn't the truth. That was not the truth. Everything was not fine. In fact, my life did not significant, well, it significantly changed, but it did not get significantly easier. So we're going to take a look today as we get prepared for the new year to get a real grasp about Christianity and kind of what it takes in order to make it most meaningful to us. Now we're going to go back a little bit and we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 2, back to after the birth of Jesus and now Mary and Joseph are facing some difficult decisions. And so let's get back to there in Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 23. And it says this in verse 13. When they had gone, now who, when who had gone? When all the shepherds and the wise men and all that stuff left, there, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here's what the prophet said. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he learned from the Magi. Now, here's, a, here's a, maybe a revelation for you. This is two years after the birth of Jesus that this takes place. Sometimes when we read through the gospel accounts, we think it happened just right after each other. But really, uh, Herod here realized that by this time, Jesus could be as old as two years old. So he ordered all of the male children, two years and younger, to be put to death so they could make sure that he got Jesus. Now, where's Jesus at the time, though? He's in Egypt. Because Joseph, as soon as he heard the angel, he got up and left for Egypt. Okay. Okay. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And here's what Jeremiah said. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this great atrocity that Herod perpetrates upon the young boys of Israel is so painful that throughout the land you could hear mothers crying. You could literally hear them crying because the soldiers of Herod came in and killed every male child two years and younger. You could imagine what it would be like if, that, if you experienced that today. There would be a huge outcry. And so therefore the, the emotion, and if you've ever gone to the Middle East, you've realized that their emotions are more notably exercised than we might exercise here. When it comes to mourning and grief, they pour it out. Okay, And so in verse 19, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and I would like to say again, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, 
he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Here's another third fulfilling prophecy. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, in this short verse of Scripture, in these 11 verses, we find that three prophecies have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now, what was the first one? Okay, he would be called out of Egypt. Now, Jesus, and there's, there's further prophecies that said he was to be born in Bethlehem, right? So he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come out of Egypt. He's going to be called a Nazarene. How do all of those coincide? When you read the story of Jesus, you see that prophecy gets fulfilled. Here's another episode or another experience where we can trust what the Bible says because it was predicted far before it happened, and then it becomes fulfilled. So make note of this so that when your friends ask you, why do you believe the Bible? Here's one of the reasons. Because what was prophesied hundreds of years before gets fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now, that's a side note for you. Today we want to take some lessons. We want to learn four lessons about Christianity. The first lesson that we want to find out is that Christianity is a fight. Now, you might not like that word fight, you know, because it might indicate that you get aggressive or whatever. Uh, so put down struggle, okay? Or put down tension. There's tension in the Christian life, okay? There's a struggle in the Christian life. And sometimes it becomes so severe that it could almost be a fight, in Luke chapter 2, verses 33 through 35, we see another similar uh, experience here in the early life of Jesus. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, we find that there are two people right after Jesus' birth. They take him to the temple to be dedicated. Now, how old was a child when he was dedicated? Okay, eight days. Okay. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary... His mother. Now, Simeon is this guy that's been hanging around forever. And his goal in life is to be around to see the Messiah born. Okay, so he's been around. He's been anticipating it. He's been hoping for it. He's been longing for it. And now all of a sudden, he crosses paths with the Messiah. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. And here's what he says about the child. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Okay, so there's many people that are going to rise. There are some people that are going to fall in Israel. Okay, now, uh, who's going to rise? Those people who follow him. Who's going to decline? Those people who choose not to. And we find that the people who decline here or the people who fall are a lot of the religious people of the time. You know, isn't it interesting how religious people often are the ones who really miss the whole idea of Jesus today? I would say that even in the Christian church, people who are very religious, who have been around forever, and who really adhere to the form of religion, really oftentimes miss the whole idea of Jesus. So it's going to cause many to rise, many to fall, and uh, also uh, in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against. There are going to be people that speak against the things that Jesus stands for. And the, here's... Simeon telling his mother this. Now, the kid is just, I mean, weeks old. And here he is telling him this stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, you can imagine Mary's dismay. Why does this guy have to rain on my parade? I'm so proud of this baby. I'm so glad to have this baby. And isn't this baby the most wonderful, best-looking baby in the whole world? And this guy's kind of raining on my parade. And then he says in verse 35, so that the thoughts of many, and 
will be a sign, will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Okay, and, and so Jesus is going to be kind of this dividing line. He's going to divide the people who follow from those who don't. And many of the people who don't were religious people. Okay, so they're going to be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. He says this directly to Mary. A sword's going to pierce your own soul. You're going to be wounded of spirit. You're going to be wounded of your, in your soul. There's going to be some heartbreak that's going to accompany all of this. Now, to be a Christ follower means that you're going to face some tensions. There's going to be some struggles. It's not just happy-go-lucky Christian life. And so let's take a look at that. And there's this peaceful side of Christianity. Don't you love it when there's peace? Don't you? Okay, yeah. Now, now, peace, what does peace mean to you? It means generally the absence of conflict, okay? the absence of tension, the absence of, of ill feeling. It means, ah, everything's wonderful and peaceful. Well, I want you to know that the word shalom in the Old Testament is the word that's translated peace. Okay, Shalom, that would be a greeting and a, and a parting as people would shalom to you. And what it meant was peace to you. And the Greek and the, and the Hebrew word shalom really means I want you to have everything that you need in order to face the experiences that you're going to have. Now, it's not always peaceful, your experiences, right? But if you have all the resources you need in order to face those periods of time, which it might be conflict, it might be distrust, it might be whatever. But if you have all the resources you need, you can sit back and go, ah. Oh, you know, life isn't always just a, a, a bowl of cherries, is it? You know, and when it's not a bowl of cherries, you need some resources to face it. You might need patience. You might need somebody to come alongside you and help carry you. But shalom means exactly that. When things aren't at rest, you will have everything that you need. Now, in order to experience peace in the Christian life, I think you need to have a couple of things. Okay, you might need more, but I'm going to just mention two today. First of all, you need a clear conscience. Life in Christ provides a clear conscience. It begins at that point of clearing your conscience with him. Because it comes to the point of repenting of your sins. Jesus says there's two things you need in order to be a follower of me. One, repent. Okay, two, believe. Repent and believe. This first idea of repentance means I want to turn away from my wicked ways. I want to turn away from my ways, not necessarily that I might even think are wicked, but just the ways that are not in, in harmony with following Christ. And so I'm going to turn away from my selfishness. Most of us have an idea of how we want to live life, right? We have an idea of what it, want, what it should look like at the end. We have an idea of how we should get there. And you, know, and you have an idea of how you're going to raise your family. And so you have this thing charted out for your kids, especially. You have your kids, and they're going to be the most beautiful baby in the, in the nursery when you go to the hospital. Oh, yeah, that's mine. That's the most beautiful one. Ooh, yeah. You know, and the, all kids are beautiful, aren't they? Every mother said yes here. The dads went. I don't know. You know, and to be honest, our kids were the most beautiful kids in the world, but they really didn't look that hot. You know, they really didn't. Uh, I remember when Jared was born, Cindy had to have cesarean section. And so she went into labor before she had the cesarean because he came early. And so this kid came out and from his eyebrows back to the back of his head was a huge slope because he had, you know, your head is soft 
And he had been pushed down in the birth canal and all that stuff. And, and so he came back with this sloped head. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, no. You know, he looked like a cone head. He really did. And, uh, and I thought, he's going to take a beating in school. And then, you know, in my ignorance, you know, I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. And the, the nurse, of course, came along and said, hey, it'll go away. Good. But, you know, we have this idea. Our kids are going to be born. They're going to be beautiful. They're going to be raised. They're going to be perfectly behaved. You know, then they're going to go to school. They're going to be the smartest kid in the class. They're going to be the smartest kid in the class. They're going to have honors. They're going to do uh, exemplary. They'll probably be teaching by the time they're in third grade. And so they go there. And, And even before that, you know, when the kids are growing up, you know, they're going to learn to change their own diapers. You know, man, this kid is superior. This kid is just incredibly good. And so therefore, oh yeah, if you think that, uh, no, our kids needed diapers, but they needed to learn to change them. And by the time they're probably six or seven years old, they'll be out mowing the lawn. You know, that'll be just right. And then they're going to go to school. They're going to graduate. They're going to go on to college. They'll probably get a graduate degree after that. Then they'll get married after that. You know, and they'll be probably about 28, 29 years old and get married. Then they'll have a great career. They'll have children. They'll bless me with grandchildren. Everything will be wonderful. Have any of you had an experience like that? No, nobody has, huh? No, it doesn't work that way. So there's this tension that comes with our conscience. When we repent of our ways, we realize we've done some things wrong. We've had some wrong ideas about what our kids should be. We have some wrong ideas about who we should be. We have some wrong ideas about how to get ahead in life. We have some wrong ideas about how to relate with people. We've had some wrong ideas. And therefore, we need to turn away from those ideas and follow the ideas of God. And that's what repentance is all about. Now, repentance also comes with, hey, God, I've done some things wrong. I had some wrong ideas. I did some wrong actions. I did wrong. And you know what happens then? You get a clear conscience. How many of you ever lived in fear of what you haven't, what people don't know about you? You know, I, I, I remember growing up, you know, my mom knew everything. And whenever I do wrong, you know, I, knew, I thought, oh man, she's going to find out. She's going to find out. She's going to find out. And there would be times where she would drop little hints for me to confess, you know. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder if she really knows or if this is just a coincidence. I don't know. I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold out. And I remember going to bed at night, not being able to sleep, wondering, oh, is she going to come into my bedroom and say, hey, you, I know what you did yesterday. And I thought, oh, man. You know, and I had this conscience problem. And finally, you know, I would, she, would, she would be really cool about it. And she would say, hey, is there something you want to tell me about what happened with you and so-and-so down the street? I remember this kid, Mike Kemper. He came up one day, and he's got this little pocket knife, and he was kind of a doofus. And he was two years younger than I was, and, and he comes up with this pocket knife, and he's going he's gonna to cut me. Gee, I'm, I'm 10, and he's 8, something like that. And so I just took it away from him, and I threatened him with it. And I said, you want to cut me? Well, here, here you go. And uh, he got up and ran home and told his mom, and she comes charging down the street, and she jumps into my mom's face. Your son was going to cut my son with a knife. My mom looks at me, because, you know, that was back in the day when you didn't first defend your child. You know, that's, you, you kind of gathered the facts before you defended your child. She looked at me, and she says, is that true? I said, well, there's more to the story. And so I told my side of the story, and I still got busted. You behaved improperly. Okay. Now, 
when that happened and that got all done, I got punished, but I thought, I'm glad that's out of the way. And that's what a clear conscience does for you. When we confess our sin to God, we go, boy, I'm glad that's out of the way. And it's like a weight is lifted off your shoulders. I remember when I first came to know Christ, my grandfather was, was there, and, and I, he says, well, how do you feel? I said, man, I feel like I'm lighter than air. I feel like I could float. And he says, the reason for that is, this is the first time you've ever experienced life without the weight of sin on you. I said, man, this is a great feeling. This is the greatest feeling in the world, to be not guilty. To be, not to be guilty, but to be found to be forgiven. And so that's what happens when we come to know Christ. All of that past junk, we give up and we get lifted from us. Now, after that happens, we spend a few years kind of dawdling around and bumping into walls and tripping over our own feet, and we accumulate some more weight. I want you to know, confession of sin is good for the soul. It lightens your load. It prevents you from having to live in fear of what people don't know about you. Now, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, Mike, I heard that you uh, threatened a kid with a knife. I'd go, yeah, I did. But guess what? I'm forgiven. And that lifts the load off of me. So a clear conscience. The second thing that causes peace in our life is our identity. Now, who are you? Who are you? And I want you to go through an exercise before the new year, before tomorrow. And I want you to go through this exercise, maybe tonight, of defining who you are. And I want you to identify yourself. If you're a Christ follower today, if you're a Christian, I want you to define yourself in terms of what God says about you, not in terms of how you feel about yourself. What does God say about you? Now, some of you have been Christians for a while, so I want you to help me out here. What does God say about you? You are what? A child of God. Okay, now let's stop there for a minute. You're a child of God. How many of you are an adult in God? Well, you know, we'd like to say we've been around for a while and so we've grown up and we know more than we did then, but God still considers you what? A child. Is it okay? And I'm not going to give you permission to sin, okay? I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm going to say. Is it okay to mess up like a child? Even now. Yeah, but as a, as a well-groomed child, when you mess up, what should you do? Admit it to dad. Admit it to dad, I messed up. Now, a lot of times we hold ourselves under a tighter scrutiny than God does. And so when we mess up, what do we do? We heap guilt upon ourselves, don't we? We heap guilt and guilt and guilt and guilt. Oh boy, I know God's forgiven me, but. Oh, I know God's forgiven me, but. I know God's forgiven me, but. There's no buts about God's forgiveness. If God forgives you, you forgive you. Okay? Don't hold yourselves more accountable than God does. Don't consider yourselves more mature than God does. A lot of times we confuse ourselves. We think we're more mature than we are. So therefore, when we mess up, we say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Probably true. Probably shouldn't have done that. But you did do it. Why did you do it? Because you're a child. You're a child. Okay. Now, and that's a good thing. Uh, What does God say about us being sinners? If you're a Christ follower, are you a sinner? Oh, boy, I'm glad that you guys responded that way because that's your homework. Are you a sinner 
or are you a child of God? How do you identify? Now, if you identify as a sinner, what do you expect to do? Sin. That's what I am. I am a sinner. But if you are a child of God who's been forgiven by the grace of God, what are you? You're a Christ follower. Whole different perspective on what you expect from yourselves. If you read some of the church fathers and their, their piety just leaks through everything that, that they write. And they talk about this thing of sin and how they want to avoid sin at all costs. In fact, some of the, uh, the monks would go away and they would live in seclusion. Why? So that they could read scripture, so that they could pray, so they could do what? No, mostly so that they could avoid sin. There are, uh, there are monks that would go out there and they would take vows of silence. Why did they take vows of silence? Because they liked the quiet? No, so they wouldn't sin. Okay? And so therefore, they made every, every effort not to sin because they knew that part of their nature was that. But I want you as a Christian today to identify what are you? Are you a sinner or are you a forgiven child of God? Because you'll live your lives completely differently depending on how you identify. So I want you to read the book of Ephesians and find out who are you in Christ? What's another thing that God says about you? You are what? Redeemed. Okay, you are redeemed. What does redeemed mean? You know, it's a good churchy word. It's a, a good churchy word. You're bought back from what? You are bought back from your sinful condition. You are bought back. What was the price that was paid for you? Because a price has to be paid for redemption. Jesus was paid for you, right? To be bought back from your sinful condition so that you could what? Live a holy life. Jesus says, be holy as I am holy. Ah, now if I believed that, and I believe that that's what God says about me, I would find it a lot easier to live a holy life and a less sinful life, right? Now, what else does, do we know about ourselves? Oh, we're not, not, I don't want to do that now. Okay, what else does God say about us? We are what? Forgiven. We are forgiven. Therefore, are we are we going to be held responsible for our junk? No, Jesus paid for that, right? So we can live without the burden of that. What else does God say about us? We are loved. Loved. How loved are you? Yeah, he died for us. When did he die for us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we cleaned up, did he? He died for us before we ever came to know him. He died for all of us before we were ever on this earth. He died for us knowing that down the road at Marina Church, there's going to be a congregation of people. I'm going to die for those folks because I don't want them to spend eternity separated from me and my father that their sin will produce, that eternal separation. I don't want that to happen. I love them too much, so love. Okay, I want you to go through and read through the Bible. Just read a few passages and see what does God say about you. Read through the book of Ephesians. What does God say about you? What does God say about us as a redeemed people? We are what? We are the church. We are the church. And so when part of your definition, part of your identity is, I'm the church. What does the church do? It reveals who God is. Okay, just like Jesus came to the earth to reveal who God was in his day, we, the church, are gathered together to live in community with each other to reveal to the world who God is. 
Now, if, a, if in the church we have these little bickerings and backbitings and baloney, blah, blah, is that revealing who God is? Absolutely not. That's revealing what sinfulness is. And so, therefore, it's vital and important for us as a community to live in community, okay? Where we do what? We accept each other just as we are, okay? Now, God, does he love you just as you are? I was watching a TV show the other day, and this preacher's preaching, and he says, there's a, there's a version of you inside of you that, that uh, is the version that God loves. And I thought to myself, no. God loves us just as we are. God loves us, and he showed, he's by sending his son Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners. And not only that, but God loves us too much to leave us like we are in that sinful condition. He wants us to rise. He wants us to behave differently. He wants us to live in community so that as we interact with each other, it will be reflective of how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact with each other. We are, a, we are a physical display of the Trinitarian God of the universe. So that's what the church is. It's not just coming to hear Pastor Mike go on, and it's not just a place to come and sing. It's a place to come and interact. Okay, now, if we, if we spend that much time on each one of these, we're in trouble. Okay, now, that peace that comes from the clear conscience and the identity in Christ is kind of uh, pit against this strife that goes on in the Christian life as well. Now, there's an internal strife that will go on in your life if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And herein lies this whole discussion of, you know, are we sinners or are we children of God or the whole thing? Because within us, there's an internal struggle, and it's the spirit against the flesh. Your spirit wants to do good, right? Man, do you ever lay awake at night and just think, you know, there's some cool thing. Oh, I'm going to meet so-and-so. It would be so cool if, da, 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 you know, and you kind of dream about what that interaction could be like. You kind of think about it and say, man, it would be so cool if, you know, I used to lay awake at night and, and I'm a golf fan. And I remember when Tiger Woods first came on the scene, you know, he's just this kid, you know, 19 year old kid. And I mean, he could, he could play golf like nobody did at the time. And I used to think it would be so cool if he was a Christian. It would be so cool if he could use that platform to speak for God. And I would just imagine those kinds of things. I hope you have those kinds of things that go on because that's feeding your spirit. Your spirit is longing for the good things of God to be evidenced in your world. Okay, so that, there you have that. But then there's this flesh thing that crawls up every now and then. And it, what is your flesh What's the one motivation of your, or not motivation, but what would be the one description of your flesh that you would use? The easy way. The easy way. Okay, I call it selfish. You know, my flesh wants what it wants. You know, if I'm hungry, you know, physically hungry, that's my flesh talking to me. Now, it's good to eat. I'm not saying you should deny that. But every once in a while, you ought to deny that and fast. You know, the Bible's really big on that. Bible says you ought to fast so that you control your appetites. Your appetites don't control you. And there's a big difference there. And so we have this tension. Oh, you know, I'd like to go here. I'd like to go there. Uh, I used to know this guy and he was in our church. And he says, you know, when I want to go see an R-rated movie, I always go to Sacramento. I go, why do you go to Sacramento? Do they have more R-rated movies? He goes, no, nobody from the church will see me. I used to think, well, if you have a conscience problem about that, you probably ought to avoid doing that. 
You know, that just makes sense. But it's this tension between our flesh and our spirit. Our flesh wants to do this stuff, but yet our spirit wants to do this. You know, the Apostle Paul says, you know, there's good that I want to do, and I know that I want to do it. But then, you know, my flesh creeps in, and he goes, oh, wretched man that I am. It is this sin that is within me that causes this to happen. So when we, uh, when we yield to that sinfulness, you know, Paul says, that, that that's the direction that we're going to go. When we yield to the Spirit of God, that's the direction we're going to go. So I want you to have this visual picture in your mind. And I want you to have two wagons, okay? And you have horses that are going to take you somewhere. You're going to hitch your horses to one of these two wagons. One is the flesh, the other is the Spirit. How do you get to where you want to go? Well, it depends on which wagon you hitch your horses to. And so if you want to go in the direction of the Spirit, hitch your horses there. If you want to go in the direction of the flesh and you have that perfect opportunity to do that, hitch your horses to your flesh and just go feed it and see where it gets you. It'll get you places you didn't think you would go. And so therefore, I encourage you, hitch your horses to your spirit so that you go in the direction of the spirit. Now, how do you do that? Practically, you read the word of God and let it transform your life. Read the word of God and do what it says. Reflect what it reflects. Have the character that it says is good for you. Now, you're going to find some places in the, in the Bible where it shows bad character. There's some guys in there that are unscrupulous. Don't follow those guys. They're in there for bad examples. Use your noggin. Okay? Let your spirit speak to you. That's what the goal of the Holy Spirit of God is that lives in you, is to lead you into all truth, to guide you into all truth. Okay, So you have this internal thing, though. And then there's... There's this other strife that goes on in the Christian life, and that is the opposition. The opposition. It is not nearly as bad. Christianity is not nearly as opposed in the United States as it once was. Okay? Now, you know why that is? It's because everybody believes this thing of tolerance. Your way is your way, my way is my way, and, and we'll just coexist. Well, I want you to know that Christianity is a, an exercise in discerning the truth the truth from the word of God. And so my truth that says we should be this way is many times in opposition to what the world says its truth is. Okay, and I'll just draw a real quick parallel here between the truth of the Bible, which says that we are the products of creation. God created us. Okay, in six days, he created everything that there is. The seventh day, he rested. Now, that's the truth from the word of God. Now, the truth from the world around us says what? What are we the creations of? Well, we're not really creations of anything. We are just the products of this cosmic explosion that happened, and therefore we have evolved from that explosion. That takes a whole lot of faith for me, and I'm just going to say that, that that I just don't... That's hard. Okay, That's hard to fathom that, some, that we could be sitting in this room speaking with each other recognizing what is meant, being able to see with our eyes, being able to touch with our hands the stuff around us, and being able to have all this sensory stuff and believe, wow, that just happened. You know, when I see a design, I think designer. Okay, lesson number two. Let's move on quickly. The reason for the fight. Why is there this struggle that goes on in Christianity? Well, here's why the struggle happens. Uh, In Luke 6, 46 through 47, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? This is Jesus speaking here. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, what does Lord mean? You're superior to me, okay? You are are the lead. You are the the one that knows more than I know. 
Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they're like. Okay, now, what does Jesus want? He really wants to be king. He wants to be the king of your life. He wants to be the king of the universe. In fact, there's going to be a time where every knee will bow, every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's going to be a point in time. Now, uh, some people are going to kneel their, their, kneel their, their selves and they're going to confess that simply because they come to the realization and go, oh man, I missed the boat. He really was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's other people who say, I recognize that ahead of time, and I bow before you in worship as my king of king and lord of lords. Now, the reason that we have this conflict is that Jesus wants to be king. What does your sinful nature want? He wants you to be king. He wants me to be king. He wants me to be the top of the heap. What is wrong with the, the whole way of worldly thinking today, the way the world thinks. The world thinks that we are the products of evolution. Therefore, we are at the top of the heap. Okay? Therefore, who tells me what to do? Me. I'm king. I'm king. I'm the top of the heap. And so when it comes to this, anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. Well, the contrary will be true too. Those people who don't practice what Jesus says and don't put his words into practice, they'll be proven to be what they are like. And they want to be king. Now, there's some people that have superior intelligence to other beings on the earth, correct? So that makes them a step above kings, okay? And the smartest king in the flock is the one who's going to be the leader and set the tone and say what is right and what is wrong. Now, that gets to be pretty dicey, doesn't it? And we live in a world today in which the, the thinking is that the smartest people or the most powerful people, the most influential people are the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong. We live in a world today like that. If you watch the news tomorrow uh, or Tuesday, when you watch the news, I want you to say, okay, what do they believe? What do they believe about this situation? What does the world believe about this situation? And... You know, is that true? The United States wants to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in Israel. What do we believe and what is true? Okay, the goal of many people who look into that situation say, you know, the goal is to create peace in the Middle East. What does the Bible say about peace in the Middle East? Not going to be any. Not going to be any. Okay, so therefore, we're barking up the wrong tree and we're expending a lot of energy on something that will not happen, correct? Who do you think should determine where the, the capital of Israel should be? God, and he speaks that to Israel, correct? His chosen people. Where have they selected to be their capital? Jerusalem. Where does Jesus, where, where did God live? Where was, when, in David's time, where did God reside? Where was the kind of the physical representation of God? There at the temple in Jerusalem. So we're saying, no, we want to keep peace. We want everybody to have a piece of the pie there in Jerusalem. So let's just step back. It's time to take a stand. It's time to let God determine what is true and what is not true. Okay? So there's the reason for the way. We want to be king and he wants to be king. And so we have this tension. Okay, lesson number three. 
Identifying with Jesus brings persecution. Did you know that? Okay. Not so much in our world today, but in the third world countries where persecution happens regularly. Okay. Nancy Lee is a great proponent of the persecuted church. And I remember speaking about the persecuted church one time, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, what is that? The persecuted church is where there is a largely non-Christian element in the country that dictates what the morals of that country should be and the beliefs of that country should be. And there's these burgeoning little enclaves of Christianity that get persecuted because of their Christian belief. They get persecuted, they get jailed, they get beaten, they get killed. That happens today. There will be people today in our world that get killed for their Christian belief. It will happen today. And so therefore, persecution happens. Now, what will happen to us, do you think, if all of a sudden we became a nation that did not believe in Christian values? I'll tell you what, the Christian church would decline. The Christian church would decrease in numbers. Okay, it would decrease in numbers. However, my belief is that that Christian church would be purified because the people who stay will be the people who truly, truly, truly believe. Whether you persecute me, whether you kill me, whether you do whatever. I remember teaching a long time ago and I would say, you know, if we had to be, if somebody came in charging through the back doors and said, you must uh, recant your Christian belief or die. I said, I would die. And I remember people coming to me after the service saying, I don't know if you would do that or not. You really have never been in that situation. You don't know what you would do. Yeah. And it tells me that most people in our world are reactionary rather than proactive. When you determine ahead of time what you will do, you are more likely to do it rather than wait until the heat of the battle and say, ooh, the odds look too bad here. It looks too grim, and so therefore I'm going to shrink back. No. We have to decide ahead of time what we are going to do, how we're going to stand in the midst of persecution. And so therefore, we need to stand strong. Lesson number four. God uses the despised and the unimportant. I remember one time in my church, uh, there was a guy in Southern California. He was uh, in uh, an organization called Youth for Christ. And he was probably, uh, he was out of college, but he would go on to high school campuses and try to recruit kids for the Christian club Youth for Christ. It was a great program. And his methodology, though, was that he would go and he would try to get the, the superior athlete, you know, the big man on campus, get the cheerleaders and convert them to Christ because he believed that they had the greatest influence. And they could really speak to the kids. And people would want to be that because they want to be cheerleaders. They want to be jocks. They want to be this stuff. And so if these kids were Christian, then they would be more likely to want to be Christians. I said, you know, and I remember talking with, his name was Larry Davis. And I remember talking with Larry one day. And I said, is that how the church was built? Did God go out and get like all of the supreme leaders and all the highly influential aristocracy and all that stuff and build a church on that? And he goes, no. He really didn't, did he? I said, no. He used what? The despised, the unimportant, and made a groundswell movement that said, you are accepted. You don't have to rise to these people's level to be accepted by God. You're accepted just as you are. And I'm going to give you two illustrations of that. Israel. God used Israel. Now, Israel has not been a nation for all of time. 
God took Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, I want you to go west, young man. I want you to go west. And so he went and didn't even really know where he was going. He just followed God. And he took him, and he made a, 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 a little nation out of him with one son. Yeah, with two sons, he made two really different nations. But one son that was out the chosen part. Okay? And so this guy has a couple of sons, and he says, okay, not well, both of these guys aren't the thing, but this one guy is. This one guy, Jacob, becomes Israel, gets renamed Israel. He has 12 sons, and out of that comes this great nation of Israel, so numerous that you can't even count them. Okay? More numerous than the sands on the seashore, more numerous than the stars in the sky, and this is now the nation Israel. And so as Israel comes about, it's come out of a nation that is no nation. People that was not a people, not a long heritage, not a lot of of fanfare, not a lot of stuff. And God takes this unimportant people and makes something very important out of them. In fact, if you look up through the nation of Israel and you look at their history, when they leave their country, when they move outside the boundaries of Israel, they're very despised people. In fact, when you look at the history of the United States of America, Jewish people were treated very poorly. In fact, there was a time where we could have gotten involved in World War II and rescued a lot of Jewish people from the atrocities that were going on in Germany. We chose not to. In fact, when we, they, they did come to the United States, they were blamed for a lot of stuff. They were despised. And so therefore, God takes that nation and says, you're mine. You are mine. And he uses that to show that You don't have to rise to a high station in life. You don't have to be well-respected. You can be someone that is just in the dregs of society that God says, I love you, and I want to call you out of that. He also uses Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus comes from. After he leaves Egypt, he comes back and he goes to Galilee, settles in Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary settle and and raise Jesus in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is like, it's kind of like the redneck area of Israel. Okay, it's the other side of the tracks. It's where the poor, uneducated people live. And he used Nazareth to be the grounding place for Jesus' upbringing. He says, I'm going to raise you around these kinds of people. I'm going to show you the needs that they have. I'm going to sh- let you see and identify with them so that you can identify with the lowly of heart. And we, likewise, when we see the importance placed on the life of Jesus, can realize that we are probably in that same kind of condition. We might be despised, we might be unimportant, and we might say, you know, what could God do with me? Well, what did he do with Israel? What did he do with Nazareth? What did he do with the people that he called to be the disciples of Jesus? What did he do with those guys? He built this force that we now call the church. And that's what he did with the common folk. And so today, I want you to know that as we face the new year, we have a chance to do something remarkable. We're going to continue next week our study in the book of Acts to see how Jesus uh, instituted this thing called the church and how the Holy Spirit infused people and empowered them to do things that they never believed they could have done. And I believe that this next year, we can be that church. We can be the church that influences this place for Christ. We can be a place that, that is a safe haven. I kind of like the name Marina Church. I wish we were called Harbor Church, really, you know. Because a harbor is a safe place for ships to come when the storms are tough. And I want Marina Church to be that kind of place that says, this is a safe place for you to come and dock your boat. You can come on the dock. You can get on land. You can find a warm place. You can find a place of shelter and comfort. You can find a place of belonging. You can find a place that takes the unimportant and makes them important. 
I pray that that happens for us this next year and that we will face this new year fully aware of what it takes to be a Christ follower like Joseph and Mary.